Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we'll be talking with John Stobart and Mark Rothery about their new book, Consumption and the Country House. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you. Hello. I was wondering if the two of you could start us off by uh, introducing yourselves and telling us something about yourselves. Yeah. Hi. Um, I'm a senior lecturer in history at the University um, of Northampton. I work on landed elites in various different um, guises, so mainly social, economic and cultural history, although more of my uh, more recent work has been on the political history of landed elites. Hi, yes, uh, it's John here. My uh, research interests are very much in terms of retailing and consumption, uh, and also, I suppose, the interface between those, the the sort of practices of shopping and the spaces of shopping as well. So I'm coming at our project from a slightly different angle. I was at Northampton previously, and now I'm at uh, Manchester Metropolitan University, where I'm a a professor of history. Those two areas sound very distinct. I I wonder... Uh, if you could explain uh, how it was that uh, the two of you came together to write this book. Okay, the, the, the kind of the origins of the project are as a, an ESRC-funded project, uh, which uh, we were both sort of working on. And and it sort of um, brought together, as you say, these sort of two complementary uh, sets of, of, of interest and, and I suppose experience and skills as well. So we're bringing um, slightly different perspectives to bear on, on the same kind of material. So it's a funded project to begin with. And from that uh, grew a number of articles and finally the book itself. So you came together to uh, write this book. And what was it about the subject that uh, brought it about? I mean, uh, there's been a lot written about country houses. Consumption is a burgeoning field. What is to be uh, gained from studying both them together? Is is it something that is distinct from uh ordinary consumption in the 18th century, or is it simply uh, adding to uh, a, a picture that we're currently filling out? I, I guess the answer to that is is kind of twofold, and, and Mark will fill in some uh, things here as well, I'm sure. I, I think, firstly, the, the conscious purpose of the of the project and of the book is to try to integrate uh, elite consumption, if you like, the sort of the landed aristocracy, into a kind of a mainstream of consumption historiography, which in terms of 18th century England focuses primarily on a kind of a middling sort and particularly an urban middling sort. So there are lots of things that we know about that as a group. Uh, and what the kind of the project was doing was sort of consciously drawing some of those ideas about that set of people and looking at those uh, uh, and how they played out for this sort of landed elite. Because previously the kind of um, um, approach 
to the country house and to um, a landed uh, aristocracy has focused on rather different areas. In terms of the country house, it's been perhaps um, a kind of art historical approach, which is fine, and there's lots of useful insights we gain uh, from that. But it gives us a very particular sort of view on the country house as a sort of a uh, a, a treasure house of, of kind of uh, art um, and collections and of the uh, uh, the owners of those houses as the kind of the connoisseurs and the collectors rather than as consumers who might share a lot of motivations and a lot of practices with a whole bunch of other people. I don't know whether you want to add anything to that, Mark. Yeah, I think much of the history um, of the aristocracy has come at the subject from an economic history perspective and it's really been focused um, on the estates um, and the running of, the funding of, capitalisation of the estates. And in the period that we cover in this book, one big um, kind of narrative, for instance, is the rise of the great estate, the expansion in the size of estates and their role in the agrarian revolution. Um, but very few studies have actually taken us inside the country house itself. A lot of the social history of this kind is very descriptive. Um, we get um, a, a kind of very generalised picture of a wealthy group of people who spent a lot of money, were very powerful, entertained with you know these big lavish dinners and balls and so on. Um, but it's all very sort of static and it, it, it doesn't give us any kind of um, sort of nuanced understanding of that style of life or, or of the um, um, or of some of the identities and patterns um, that kind of form, formed a framework for those. So it fills a very important gap, I think. And I think an important part of that is is that is that um, kind of dynamism or animation uh, that we're trying to uh, bring yeah. to an analysis of the country house. So rather than a sort of a, a set static picture. It's consumption as a process. So there are kind of flows of things as well as things that are sat there. Uh, and I think that's an Im 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 important contribution that, that, that we can make here. Plus the way in which doing that involves looking not only at the kind of the, the big ticket items, the furniture, the artwork uh, and so on, but also the rather more mundane everyday things that, that keep a house ticking over. It really is a sense of the country house as an organic space in which people are living and not the sort of museum pieces uh, as we encounter them today, where everything is in a, is in a fixed place and is almost, uh, you know, sort of almost fossilized or petrified rather than a place where people are constantly changing their environments in a way that we could relate to today. No, absolutely. And I think, it, I mean, it's a real challenge for uh, organisations like the National Trust to present a house in anything other than that kind of static way. There's certainly a move to try and do that, to, to, to kind of um, animate um, the house, to make it feel like there are people there or who have just gone out, as it were. So what, what we're trying to do in the book does kind of tap into a sort of a broader uh, agenda within the kind of the heritage sector, although you know the two are, are running in parallel rather than necessarily talking to each other directly. I think it's also worth saying as well that there are quite often assumptions about studying elite groups that in some way it's um, quite straightforward and easy mm -hmm. um, because the sources are there, they're a literate group, um, you know, and they left a, a footprint historically which is fairly 
um, straightforward to kind of delineate. I mean, obviously, I would say now that it was very difficult and it was a very tricky exercise, but actually getting to the level at which you can animate these houses, understand the complexities and the layering, the way that they're, they're used, what they represent and so on, is, is, is just as complex. So I think that's partly why people probably haven't, historians haven't really analysed this subject in this way uh, before, because it seems like we kind of know roughly what went on in country houses. Well, one of the things that stands out in your book is some of the challenges in terms of undertaking that analysis. And while your book is uh, does broadly address consumption in country houses in the 18th century, you focus in particular on three case studies of three Midland gentry families. And I was wondering if you could uh, tell us a bit more about those families and how representative they were uh, for their time. Sure. The, the three families that we focus on, and the reason for doing this is, is so, that, so that, as Mark suggests, that there's, a, there's a, an opportunity to look at any particular situation in some real depth rather than just sort of skim over the surface, as it were. The three families then, it's the Lee family of Stonely Abbey in Warwickshire. Uh, they're uh, the wealthiest of the three families that we're looking at. They're the kind of the Mr. Darcy's of, uh, of, of, of our sample. They're sort of worth 10,000, maybe a little bit more by the end of the 18th century and are, are living in, in probably the grandest of, of, the, of the three houses, which has a significant extension added to it, the West Range, uh, just at the start of our study period uh, in the 1720s. Second family are, are the Newdigates of Arbury Hall, again in Warwickshire. Uh, the principal character here is, is Sir Roger Newdigate, who's maybe the most well-known of the characters that we look at. Uh, he's MP for Oxford uh, from 1750 to 1780, uh, and he's quite a, kind of a, a well-recognised sort of man of letters. He's a little bit less wealthy, but uh, invests heavily in uh, coal mines and canals uh, on his estate, and at a peak, his income is sort of eight, 9,000 per annum, perhaps. The third family are the Drydens of Cannons Ashby in Northamptonshire. We're interested in two sets of people there. the sort of Edward Dryden, who, who does a lot of work sort of modernising the house at the start of the 18th century, and John Turner Dryden and uh, his wife Elizabeth Dryden, uh, who own the house right at the turn of the 19th century. <laughs> It's a much smaller property and a much smaller estate, uh, income of maybe two and a half thousand. So it, it's, it's, if you like, um, three different types of, of this kind of lesser aristocracy, major gentry sort of group. The extent to which they're representative is very difficult to, to know uh, until you've looked at lots and lots of other families. But I think they're capturing certainly three different types of family um, that have maybe fallen a little bit sort of under the radar um, of studies where we tend to focus particularly on the kind of the big flamboyant um, uh, noblemen, uh, the sort of the, the dukes of the realm who are who are spending uh, uh, very, very lavishly. So we're looking at a, at a group that is sort of one or two notches below that and I think are, are certainly more representative, if that's the word, of a, of a, of a larger section of the landed uh, aristocracy. One of the things that you do at the start of the book is you talk a bit about 
the patterns and rhythms that emerged from examining these three uh, families. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about what those patterns were. I mean, was spending just a regular everyday activity that never fluctuated, or were there differences, and was there any sort of pattern to the differences? Yeah, um, there are there are patterns in this spending. So um, this isn't you know, hugely wealthy families continually spending their money. There tend, tended to be peaks, which we discuss in the book, peaks in spending, at particular moments in the history of the family. And the biggest peaks occurred at the points of inheritance. So when uh, one of the owners died, someone else inherited the house and the estate. They came into that um, estate and into the country house with the intention to imprint themselves in some way onto the fabric of the house or onto the uh, structure of the house. The level at which um, this occurred is... it vary between different owners and obviously it was um, facilitated or not by the level of wealth and level of debt that each generation inherited along with the with the house but you see generally these peaks in spending across a fairly short period of time in comparison to the longer period of the book as people um, inherited the um, the house and when I say they imprinted themselves on the house this was part of you know, a more complex kind of semiotics, if you like, of lineage and, and family belongings. So they never really made the house their own, um, but certainly they, they, they altered it to their taste, to their um, interests and so on. I think what we've got sort of um, run, running throughout, um, the, these, these sort of peaks of spending uh, reflect those kind of inheritance events perhaps rather more than marriage, which is what we're often sort of told. Um, but, of course, un- un- underlying all of that is, is a sort of a, an, an unavoidable uh, amount of spending that is to do with running the house, and that you just can't get away from. So that's that kind of sort of base flow, if you like, on top of which we get these sort of peaks of, of spending. No, I was going to say that the, uh, the, the notion of the peaks, the both of you describe it, points to what we were talking about a few minutes ago regarding the notion of these as lived-in spaces. These weren't just uh, like walking into, say, a a modern-day hotel room and you just make yourself comfortable. They did try to make the space their own. But again, going back to the income levels of the the, uh, three groups, in particular the three case studies that that you've focused upon, that they don't have the income to tear down and totally reconstruct. So there, there's a limitation in terms of what, they're, what they could accomplish with their resources. Yeah, that's, that's right. And, and the build fabric and structure of a building like a country house, in some ways, is actually quite limiting. It, you know, it seems like there's, there's more space. There's perhaps more that you can, you can do. Um, but it can actually be a limiting factor. Another limiting factor as well, as well as debt and income, though, were the, con- the values that seem to come through in these levels of spending. An important principle on the part of most of the people that we studied um, in these three families was, was one of thrift. So actually, each generation spends quite a small proportion of its annual income. Most of, the, most of that income seems to have been invested back into the estate, um, or invested in um, things like the collieries that John mentioned to Roger Niedergate had invested in. So they're, they're spending a very small proportion of their income. Now, of course, 
the amount that they're spending or perhaps individual items like jewellery um, is many, many multiples of the annual salary of the servants that worked in these houses. So, you know, it is extensive in that sense um, and in comparison to other social groups. But actually, in terms of the money that they've got, they're not really spending a huge amount of it on the kind of goods that people see in country houses when they go and visit them. And as John said, the majority of spending actually on the house itself when on the more mundane, everyday spending to keep the house running and functioning as a, as a family home. Sorry, those peaks can, can, can certainly take a family beyond its annual income. But, but mm. because it's a, it's, a, it's a peak that doesn't happen year on year, you can sort of, if you like, you can overspend one year and kind of make up for that the next year. Um, so there are there are kind of ry- rhythms in the spending that are accommodated within a kind of a much smoother flow in terms of income. And that was uh, something that uh, both uh, the, the two of you referred to in the book is how, especially in the case of, of the Lees and, and the Nudigates, there was a perception of the need to live within their means on, on a year by year basis. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is part of the responsibility of a country house owner, an estate owner, um, that actually, in reality, um, they're tenants for life, if you like. Um, They hold this estate and this house in in trust. And actually, the law was set up so that this was the case as well, the system of strict settlement, um, which is far too dull to go into in any uh, detail. Um, (laughs) Um, meant that each owner really had restrictions on, on you know, what they could sell and, and what they could do with the money that they, they'd inherited. Um, so there's a culture within which this day should be passed on in tax, if possible, um, you know, aggrandized from, from one that had been inherited. This value of thrift is, is to some extent gendered as well in the, in the sense that it was an important value for men in this period. It was a masculine quality, if you like, to be able to control one's finances. Um, but we see plenty of women in this study doing, um, you know, managing to do that as well. And yet, in spite of the uh, uh, discussion that you have in your book about the notion of everyday consumption, you do spend uh, a, cons- a chapter mm-hmm. talking about the construction projects. And I was wondering if the two of you could talk about how that fits within the overall picture of consumption in the country house. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, there's, there's always, um, I was going to say a tension. I'm not quite sure that, that that's quite the right word. Um, but there is this sort of balance being struck between ambition to imprint uh, one's own taste, uh, one's own character, uh, upon the property and balancing that with kind of the, the everyday running of the house. Um, and we, we highlight in, in uh, you know, two, two or three projects in particular. Uh, I mean, one is the, is the uh, sort of gothicization of Arbury Hall by Sir Roger Newdigate. Um, he's really a pioneer of that as a sort of an architectural form. And um, we can see his own hand very clearly in terms of uh, devising the plans and overseeing their execution. So it's very much a kind of a, a personal project and a personal 
uh, identity almost being imprinted upon the house, certainly a personal taste being imprinted upon the house. Elsewhere, in terms of what the Lees are doing, there the sorts of spending are very much more directed at the interiors and the furnishings of the house. So it's a grand design in as much as they are creating particular sorts of living space within the house. Some of those spaces, of course, are for public display. Uh, Others are more private. All of that public-private distinction is a really difficult one and one that's relative to who you are, the time of day, who you're with, and so forth. Um, But I think that's an important point to make in terms of that... um, distinction between imprinting one's character and imprinting one's taste in terms of the building which isn't an easy task and imprinting one's taste and character and adjusting a house according to your needs and your and your sort of family circumstance by uh, investing in furniture rearranging furniture uh, creating particular environments that's much much easier to do it's cheaper still a lot of money but it's cheaper but it's also something that can be done within the framework of the house as it already exists so there's that 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 kind of um, 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 playoff between between those two i think another Im- impression which is um kind of nuanced by by this research another impression that you, that you get from visiting country houses as well is the kind of the grand design um um kind of motif you're quite often told who built this house according to what design you know when the house was established which obviously you know it's very useful um information but it gives the impression that this is in a sense was a kind of quite straightforward ground up process where the the house was built a little bit you know there was some change in style across time but essentially what you're seeing is the vision of 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 um um, whoever it is that builds it, whether it's you know Roger Newdegate at Arbury or perhaps Edward Lear at Stoneley. As we've said, though, you know this is a far more complex and, in a sense, a more difficult process to navigate for the owners. And what you see through the houses is actually a very complex sort of layering of identities. And if the country house is you know an expression of habitus, if it's an expression of the cultural identity. And the cultural power of the aristocracy is a very complex, layered um, um, message, if you like, that's um, being sent. You find all kind of mixtures, mixtures of styles, some gothic, some classical. Um, some of the some of the objects in houses, you know, would have been considered very fashionable um, in in the period that they were purchased. Others would more, more seem to denote rank and lineage and and um, the position of a family or an individual, you know, in history, if you like, in the history of that family. So they're very complex um, messages to to decode. Um, I wouldn't expect, you know, the National Trust to sort of embrace that complexity. I don't think you can do that on a, a sort of one or two hour visit to a house. Mm-hmm. But it certainly looks at from this perspective, it, it's a very complex um, message to decode. And one of the points you uh, return to throughout the book is how that messaging was a very conscious part 
uh, or very, uh, very at the forefront of their minds oftentimes when they're engaging in consumption. This is not just a place to hang their hats. This is not just a place for them to go to bed. This is also a place where they are very much on display, perhaps only to themselves and their servants, but also you know, oftentimes to the public at large. And there were certain expectations that came with that. Yeah, and I think we can see that being imprinted upon um, uh, different rooms in different ways. Um, I think it's Stonely Abbey, the, the, the Lees house, uh, that's, that's clearest. You've got a kind of a, the equivalent of a sort of a state apartment, which remains largely untouched um, from the 1720s when Edward III Lord Lee uh, furnishes those rooms right the way through to uh, Mary Lee's death uh, in 1806. Um, there are some minor changes, but the character and the essential purpose of those rooms remains um, the same. They are rooms of, 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 of kind of public display. They're showing the pedigree, the lineage, the status of the Lee family. The other side of the entrance hall, you've got another set of rooms that are constantly being uh, changed. Each generation imprints their own taste, uh, their own uh, needs on those rooms. Um, so we see a succession of, of kind of, if you like, refreshments of those rooms uh, in terms of new furniture, in terms of uh, things like musical instruments, uh, board games and so forth being imported into the rooms. Um, to make them much, much more sort of sociable spaces. Those are places where the Lees would, would socialise with their friends. The other rooms are for projecting a particular image. These are the rooms where you actually live, if you like, and where you, where you, where you socialise, where you enjoy life in the country house. So that's kind of spatial differentiation, I think, is a, is a, is a, is a very important part of understanding the kind of complexity of, of the country house. Somewhere that's as big as Stonely Abbey accommodates that quite easily. Smaller houses, like Canons Ashby, for example, that's a bit more complicated, uh, a bit more difficult to make those clear distinctions in terms of what particular spaces might be about. But even then, we can see uh, attempts, certainly by Sir John Turner Dryden and Elizabeth Dryden at the end of the 18th century, to kind of carve out some of those sorts of differentiations in terms of what their uh, what their dining parlour is about, a very sort of um, um, public facing room, and uh, their what they term their, their kind of drawing room, uh, an upstairs room, interestingly enough, uh, which was um, very much more about that kind of sociable living, a very sort of modern, inverted commas, fashionable furniture. So even in those small houses, there's an attempt to do this kind of um, spatial differentiation. We've been talking a lot about the uh, spaces in terms of a redesign. I'd like to shift the focus now to the... Uh, topic of everyday consumption, which uh, consumes a, a great part of the book. And here we see not just, uh, you know, different patterns because the, the, the focus is different, but we also see a uh, oftentimes wider range of, of individuals making these decisions. And who, so who exactly was involved and what were they consuming and, and in what ways uh, was the consumption uh, 
you know, shaped by maybe different individuals, different needs, and 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 uh, different circumstances. I guess here the the thing um, uh, to do to begin with is maybe just to sort of um, outline the kinds of things we're talking about in terms of this sort of rather more mundane everyday spending. That would include uh, food and drink. It would also include uh, fuel for heating the house, uh, candles for lighting it, the costs of maintaining, the costs of uh, cleaning the house. Uh, costs of making repairs, stocking the kitchen with uh, equipment, and so on. So it's those sort of everyday things that are to do with how a house is run. Quickly, could you speak speak perhaps a bit to the scale that we're talking about here? I mean, roughly how much are they consuming on, say, a, 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 a monthly basis or perhaps a weekly basis in, in, uh, in terms of, say, food, fuel, and so forth? That's a really difficult question to to to, to pin down because the, um, the 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 rhythms of spending here there's a kind of a base flow, but but month on month there could be quite a lot of variation. It might account for something like a third of the spending uh, overall, um, but that could vary quite a lot month on month depending on whether the how whether the family's in residence, for example, um, or whether they're in their London house or, uh, you know, away on tour or something like that. But it also seems to reflect quite a careful bit of um, um, stock keeping, if you like, by probably by the housekeeper in most instances. Um, so there are sources that we've been using that uh, indicate the level of stores held within uh, some of these houses. And we can see a kind of a rhythm of spending that reflects the level of uh, 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 goods within those stores. So how many candles have we got? Do we need to buy some more? How much tea is there? When do we need to replenish those supplies? There's obviously a a very careful calculation going on. There's not sort of um, we put in a regular order for candles and they come in every week or every month. It's much more of a sort of a um, a measured process, and in that, I think it's the housekeeper that plays a, a crucial role. And I think one of the things we're doing here is highlighting some of these, uh, if you like, other individuals and the role that they will play in terms of determining some of the rhythms uh, and certainly some of the choices in terms of uh, who goods might be acquired from. So the housekeeper. Uh, certainly at Stoneley Abbey and at uh, Arbury Hall for the Lees and the Newdigates, has a great deal of scope in terms of determining who it is that they are buying, uh, who that she is buying, um, 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 particular sort of provisions uh, from on a sort of a daily, weekly basis. Uh, And they then present their accounts to uh, the uh, owner of the house, maybe quarterly, maybe... uh, twice yearly, usually quarterly. Um, So they are determining the spending. They are uh, engaging with particular tradesmen and they're having their kind of accounts signed off and their spending uh, uh, reimbursed by the owner of the house. If we move a sort of a notch or two up from that, um, the steward is is another key character in uh, determining the kinds of uh, interaction that uh, these families and the houses that they kind of embody, in a sense, um, uh, the interaction that they will have with uh, with tradesmen. And again, at the 
Lee family, Stonely Abbey, um, that's uh, certainly the, the clearest example we have of this. A guy called uh, Samuel Butler, who is the steward of the house for uh, uh, several decades in the later part of the 18th century. He's engaging with uh, um, um, tradesmen. He's the one who, for example, when there's a complaint made about uh, the quality of furniture that comes into the house, it's him that engages with the supplier. It's he that corresponds, not the owner of the house, not Lord Lee. Um, There's also uh, plenty of evidence that, that they are in some ways responsible for monitoring the uh, activities of workmen who are in the house, installing new furniture, doing repairs, whatever else it might be. So they are, are, are kind of key characters in, in sort of shaping and managing the house in a way that kind of represents or reflects the, the sort of role that we might expect the housewife to have in a kind of a gentry or a middling sort family. The kind of the household economy is the, is the responsibility of the housewife, that day-to-day management of, of the house. Well, here it's the, it's the role of the, the steward and alongside him the housekeeper. So these sort of servants, senior servants, playing a, a key role in terms of shaping, shaping consumption. Going back to the proportion spent on maybe more conspicuous items and then sort of more, more everyday items, one, one kind of macro figure, if you like, for um, Sir Roger Needigate at Arbury Hall, um, across the whole period, so this isn't a monthly accounting, but across the whole period of his account books that we have, which covers a long period of time, he spent um, 7% of his income, or of his spending rather, on building, and 10% on food. So for all of the kind of grand statements that were being made through um, the redesign of Arbury Hall, all of the effort and, and spending that, that went into it, um, it, you know, it was only just over half of the money that was spent on food, okay, some of that spending on food was on, you know, things like exotic fruits and expensive and fashionable sort of teas and, and, and things like that. But a lot of the spending on food was actually, again, on, on just quite mundane, um, everyday um, items. So that everyday life actually accounts for a, a, a bigger proportion of spending than, than the, the building itself, if you like. And yet there's also another important uh, distinction that emerges in uh, terms of spending patterns and spending habits that you talk about in the book, and that's gender distinctions, how uh, you would have your masculine and and, and feminine uh, spheres that uh, were distinct as well, and and different spending patterns within those as well. And I was wondering if if the two of you could speak to that. Yeah, gender is an important an important factor in terms of providing the limits, if you like, to to the way that men and women behaved as country house consumers. Um, women in these houses were very powerful, very wealthy women, uh, and certainly more privileged than the majority of men in British um, society at this time. But they were part of a patriarchal system that still defined to a certain extent um, what the limits of their behaviour was, what the limits of their choices and autonomy were. So you see different types of responsibilities kind of channeled to men and women and different types of identities expressed um, to a certain extent through their um, spending. And some of this is quite orthodox and, and what you'd expect. So 
men were more likely to collect books, to spend money um, collecting books, um, to spend money on the fabric of the building, um, architectural um, um, changes to the house, um, and so on. Men had more autonomy, in a sense, over their um, spending, and they were in what you might call kind of global overall control of the spending in the um, house. Women um, were more likely to be involved in the everyday running of the household. So the kind of things that we've just been discussing, the, the kind of everydayness of the country house, paying the servants um, wages, um, interacting with the senior servants, perhaps buying the um, servants um, clothing and so on. And they had less autonomy and they seemed to have, and, and they had less you know, quite straightforwardly, less money to spend as well, less control over um, over spending. Within that, though, there are some um, some nuances and some complexities, um, and it's far from straightforward um, in in a gender sense. So, the kind of things that men spend money on vary between different men um, because they had different tastes and different interests and so on. It might be different men within the same family, or it could be between different families. So a good example, for instance, is, is Thomas Lee um, and his son, um, Edward Lee. Thomas wasn't or doesn't seem to have been very interested in collecting books. He spent more money on clothes and on dress and so on. Edward, by contrast, um, was far more interested in collecting books. He spent very little on clothes at all, and he spent a lot more than his father on, on, on building works and alterations to the house. That may be because of the financial situation of the family at the time um, between those two owners, but it can't explain all of those, those distinctions. So really, in a sense, elite men had more autonomy about the way they expressed themselves as men, about the way they expressed their masculine um, identities. And you see those variations then coming through in the different um, kind of spending patterns at the same time, we shouldn't stereotype women in the country house either and the sort of the limitations that were placed on them. They spent large amounts um, of money and they seem to have, they obtained and sourced goods from, in some cases, from different suppliers than their husbands had. So they worked, you know, they were operating in, to a certain extent, their own consumer um, kind of universe um, away from men. Another complication as well is in terms of single women. Um, not all of the women in this in this book were married, um, or you know, in the case of Elizabeth Dryden, she became a widow after her husband's death and had a lot more autonomy over um, over her spending, where she was investing money and so on. Albeit in very restricted context because of the debts on the estate at the time. But perhaps the best example is Mary Lee, um, who's the owner or the tenant for life of Stonely Abbey between 1786 and 1806 and effectively had, had you know, complete autonomy and control over what was spent, what kind of goods were purchased, what was done to the house um, and so on. And she's left quite a significant footprint on Stonely Abbey in terms of um, the changes she made um, to the house and the kind of life that she lived there. I think it's worth saying that you know, these aren't unusual examples um, because of rates of mortality um, in this period, although you know, divorce was, was very, very, very rare, but because of rates of mortality, um, which are far higher than they are today, 
Um, you know, many women were left single and in charge of the estate. Some of them married again, and they're, therefore they're kind of re-entered into a patriarchal um, uh, relationship and, and context and so on. But not all of them did. So Mary and Elizabeth represent you know, a large number of country house women who um, were in control of finances and had um, a level of autonomy that we not, might not necessarily expect in, in, um, in women. And what I think is particularly interesting when, when we look at, um, at Mary Lee in particular, but Elizabeth uh, Dryden also, is, is, is the way in which uh, a kind of a gender identity and a status identity become um, kind of mixed up together. Um, so that things that we tend to think of as male areas of spending uh, on the estate, for example, then pass on to the woman. So are they are they male areas of spending that the woman is now engaged in? So is she engaged in male masculine spending, or is it? Uh, and I think this is probably what we, what we would argue: is it that there are these these areas of spending that are to do with land ownership? Now they're generally attributed to to the man because um, in a patriarchal society that that's how the accounting uh, and the legal process uh, works. But actually. Uh, they're not necessarily kind of masculine areas of spending. They're areas of spending that are to do with status, to do with land ownership. And whether it's the man or the woman that takes those on, kind of is a almost a demographic accident uh, as much as anything else. Mary's left as the only person who can inherit the estate. She takes on all of those things as well. I did find Mary and, and uh, Mary Lee and uh, Elizabeth Dryden two of the most fascinating uh, individuals in that book for that very reason, because there you're seeing almost a uh, centrifugal separation of the duties of the head of the household and the more uh, specifically masculine gendered expenditures, because they had to do the one as the uh, heads of the estate, uh, or life tenants, if you will, but they did not necessarily have to engage in a lot, of, or maybe could not have engaged in a lot of the more specifically uh, masculine gendered uh, spending habits of the uh, of that particular group of society. Yeah, Elizabeth puts a, a quite clever um, kind of inflection on this when after her husband has died and they've spent beyond their means. They're one of the you know few people in this book who, who do this, um, and Elizabeth is left with the debts um, and corresponds with the suppliers who are asking her to settle the bills that have been left um, after her husband's death. And essentially claimed, you know, perhaps, you know, truthfully, but certainly in a very kind of calculated way, it seems, that these are her husband's debts. She didn't have the power to make these decisions, so they've come to the wrong person, um, and they should, you know, they should understand that she's neither got the income or actually the ability to, to pay these debts. So those gender identities could be used um, in quite useful ways um, sometimes by these women as well, as they were undoubtedly by men in, in perhaps equivalent situations. And the other aspect, of course, to, I think that needs to be kept in mind is the degree to which when these women did engage in that spending, how sometimes it was filtered through their servants. So if they were playing that role, they might be working through the steward or through, in the case that you describe of dealing with, say, horses and carriages, they're, uh, you know, dealing with suppliers through the groomsmen. Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, a lot of the 
specific interaction that um, uh, is going on between um, the spending that's happening in Mary Lee's name and the actual uh, sort of uh, tradesman who's who's supplying those goods or services. Yeah, I think um, it's 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 clearly not Mary herself who is going along uh, and and um, um, ordering the carriages or the harnesses or so forth. The carriages maybe, but but probably not all the harnesses and, and whatnot. Yeah, the groom is involved in that. And as we said before, the steward takes on a large role in terms of the the kind of the day to day um interaction with with tradesmen but we need to be a little bit careful because that's a role that samuel butler the the, the steward at, at, at stonely that's a role that he fulfilled for mary's brother edward the fifth lordly so it's 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 not just a question of of mary as a woman not engaging with these tradesmen it's a question of a landed uh, aristocracy not engaging with these with these tradesmen necessarily in a direct sense um um now i think there's clearly uh, evidence that um uh, edward lee for example the fifth lord lee uh, is is going into bookshops is browsing is ordering uh, you know uh, specific items and so forth he is if you like shopping in that sense equally there's evidence that mary is doing that with some of the things that she's acquiring but for a lot of these things they they are dealing through uh, a senior servant or maybe they're um, 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 dealing with tradesmen sort of via, via correspondence, for example. So there's a sort of a, a, a variety of, of arrangements that cut across these kind of gender divides um, and, are, and are maybe structured more by the nature of the goods that are being bought than necessarily the identity or the gender of the person who's doing the ultimate uh, buying, you know, who's paying the bill. You bring up uh, one final major aspect of the book uh, just now, John, which is the discussion that you have about the suppliers and the spaces where consumption took place. And I was wondering if you could, uh, if the two of you could speak a bit to that, the you know, uh, who these people were, from whom they were purchasing these goods, and, and, and where this consumption did take place, because a lot of this could not take place uh in the country house or on the country grounds or sometimes even in the immediate environment it had to go uh, much further afield yeah i think there's a there's a kind of a a, a myth of a sort of a um, um a self-sufficient um a state um which is just that it's a myth i mean there are there are a lot of things that an estate could supply in terms of uh building uh, furniture in terms of food, in terms of drink, but equally there's a huge amount that, of course, it couldn't supply from things like tea through to clothing, through to carriages, silverware, or, you know, you name it. There's a huge amount of things that needed to be bought in. Some of those, of course, were acquired from uh, the immediate uh, area around the country house. So it's a major um, um, economic uh, sort of beneficiary to, to the locality. Um, you've got sort of anything from blacksmiths and masons through to the people who are supplying the provisions uh, via the, the housekeeper. All of them uh, are, are, are benefiting in some way from the, uh, the presence of, of the country house and the, and, the, and, the, and the owners in the country house doing that spending. The, the families that we've been able to analyse uh, their spending in, in kind of detail, the Lees and the Nudigates, are... Uh, 
the vast majority of the ident- of the supplies that we can identify uh, are in London. Um, a, a huge proportion um, of those that we can identify, it's it's sort of three quarters, eighty percent or so. Um, or of the supplies and of the goods are coming from London. So it's a major um, 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 role that um, that London is playing in the supply of these places as well. And the ways in which uh, those those relationships might be built uh, would would be would be many and varied, depending again, I think, very much on the character of the the goods being acquired. So some might be um, dealt with largely by correspondence. Uh, some undoubtedly involved visits to the shops themselves. I've already sort of alluded to Edward the Fifth Lord Lee um, visiting uh, shops, uh, bookshops in London, and we have um, sort of letters that, that kind of uh, indicate um, that he's been kind of browsing the shelves and noting down some of the volumes available. We know from uh, Sir Roger Newdigate's diaries um, that he, I mean, he's a terrific walker. Uh, would walk the streets of London, would walk his estate. Uh, he walked uh, an enormous amount. And we've got some of the uh, the itineraries almost that he would follow. Uh, and they take in a, a variety of venues, but amongst those are, are shops that he's dropping into to, um, to leave a watch to be mended, for example, or to look at some silverware or whatever it might be. So being, being there in person it, it is tremendously important. And that kind of access, direct access to London suppliers it, it is is very, very important. But of course, it's made an awful lot easier um, because London isn't necessarily a place that's a long way away. Clearly, it's a long way from where the country houses that we've studied, where they're located. It's you know, 100 miles or so. But each of the families has a house in or near to London. So some of the year... In the case of Mary Lee, maybe nine months of the year, she's spending in a London house. So local spending in that sense is in London, or in her case, it's in Kensington. Um, and um, to give an idea of the sort of the magnitude of that, um, she spends something like uh, £1,200, £1,300 um, just on things like meat, poultry, fish, candles and so forth amongst the shopkeepers in Kensington. So it's a huge kind of input. Uh, that's over about a sort of a five, ten year period. So there's a huge input into that kind of local economy. Um, but that local could be Kensington, it could be London, or it could be Stonely or Arbury. So where a particular family is located would impact on you know where that spending takes place, but also the sorts of relationship that would be uh, experienced between the shopkeeper and uh, the landowning shopper, if you like. Two things I'd add to that. Um, I think in, in terms of the, sort of the regional spatial dimension here, um, we need to be very careful. As John said, the majority of suppliers we, we identify were in London. It's much more difficult because of the sources to find them um, in the local regional area. Mm-hmm. But um, Arbury Hall and Stonely Abbey weren't really that far apart. Um, they're, you know, they're especially pretty close to each other. About 15 miles. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Although some of the suppliers in the local area or the regional area, if you like, overlap, they don't really share um, in the same kind of regional cultural consumption, it seems, in terms of who they're purchasing these goods from. They seem to move in different circles. Um, 
perhaps they didn't like each other, so they just avoided each other and didn't go to the same people. <laughs> it's quite interesting in, the, in that regional context. They're actually um, they're actually going to quite different people. But on, on on the bigger scale as well, one thing that's um, not very well, not absent, but but not very conspicuous in either of those houses is the kind of broader colonial and imperial um, context, um, which we're being led to believe increasingly was was you know very important in the country house that they were expressions of this wider colonial world. And what we actually say, see is a much stronger kind of imprint and footprint from Europe and from the Grand Tour and so on. Um, that may be the, something specific, specific about these two families. It does seem interesting that across this period when the empire is you know, really expanding quite significantly, becoming more and more important in terms of trade and so on, that doesn't seem to be represented in, in, in two houses. Yeah, I mean, we have things like, I mean, they are drinking tea and coffee, they are buying sugar, of course they're doing this, so they are engaged in that kind of colonial um, enterprise in, 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 in that sort of way. Um, but in that sense, so is everybody else in the country. Um, yeah. These are not, these are not, and, and that's an interesting thing, it kind of links their consumption to that of, 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 of other uh, social groups, of course, but but it's not as Mark says. It's 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 not a question of these being sort of um, places that are profoundly influenced um, or consciously influenced. I think by um, by empire or by ideas of of uh, sort of the exotic. Um, I mean, Mary Lee in her room at Stonely Abbey ha- has some Chinese wallpaper and some um, some small kind of Chinese landscapes. There's a few bits and pieces of Chinese uh, sort of porcelain figurines, but it's 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 a very small element in a much bigger sort of English stroke European and, and primarily English, I think, um, material culture that seems to characterise Stonely Abbey in, in particular. I think. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Before we go, I was wondering if uh, the two of you could tell us what you're working on now. I've um, just finished a, a mini project, I think I'll call it, on um, on the younger sons of the landed gentry, um, the men who didn't inherit the estate, um, thinking about their masculine identities. And it, it, there's an article that I've written which is actually about masculine anxiety and the kind of anxiety that was caused by not being able to reach or, or you know, potentially not being able to reach the level at which one was the social level at which you know one was sort of born into, um, and I'm also involved in a project with an, a, um, another historian, a potential project if we're funded um, on um, the masculine identities of a series of British prime ministers from Robert Walpole through to Benjamin Disraeli, thinking about um, their own. You know, reflections on themselves, if you like, but also the way they're represented in um, biographical literature and in the press, um, and how this evolved um, over time. I'm um, uh, working uh, currently with a, a Marie Curie fellow who's at uh, Manchester Met uh, with me on a project looking at uh, comfort and the country house, a kind of a comparative study of uh, uh, England and Sweden. Uh, so this builds on some of the interests um, that we develop in, in consumption in the country house 
um, looking at the idea of comfort in a kind of a physical sense. So what makes these places comfortable and how are they described in those sorts of terms? But also laying alongside that an idea of comfort in a in a kind of an emotional uh, sense as well, a much more traditional uh, sense of the word as a sort of a consolation. So the comfort that you might um, um, get from from friends or from writing letters, uh, from interacting with your family, uh, but also as well the, the the way in which comfort might be something that is counterintuitive in as much as you can be physically very uncomfortable uh, in a particular um, uh, dress or a particular or sat on a particular chair. Um, so physically, it's uncomfortable. But actually, it's conforming, it's the proper thing to do, and therefore you are socially comfortable, that's the right word. Um, but that's an idea that we're, we're kind of kicking around uh, at the present in this, in this notion of, of comfort in a, in, a, in a broader sense. Those sound like very interesting projects. Well, I wanted to uh, thank uh, both of you for taking uh, the time out of your schedules to to uh, speak with us today about your book, Consumption in the Country House. Uh, I hope uh, the two of you have a wonderful day. Thank you.